Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. To learn more about our church, please visit us online by visiting ccloto.org or download our app in your app store today. As we jump into today's message, our hope and our prayer is that you'd be challenged and encouraged in your walk and relationship with Jesus. Now, let's jump into the word together. Do you ever ask yourself this question, why am I the way that I am? (laughs) Or maybe a spouse asks that, you know, like, why are you the way that you are? Either way, sometimes not a great answer. You know, for me, one of the struggles I have is I can hyper-focus on small details that don't matter, right? (laughs) Ask the staff. I can hyper-focus on small details that don't matter. And, And really within the context, when it disrupts my normal rhythms and patterns of life, And again, small details. We're not talking like big, massive things. We're talking like small little things. Like here's a real struggle of my life. You know, like if you remember reading through Job, remember when God looked at Satan and said, hey, have you considered my servant Job? Like this is my life where God's looking at Satan saying, hey, have you considered my servant Nick? He's like, this is, and Satan's like, okay, I'll mess with him. This is how Satan messes with my life. I like to drink coffee at home from the exact same mug every morning. And if I don't have that correct mug, oh, it's to heaven in a handbasket real quick. You know what I mean? Like my whole day is wrecked. I'll come home, look strung out. My wife's like, is everything okay? Wasn't my right mug, right? And it's it's a black mug and it has James 1.12, you know, blessed is the man who's steadfast under trial. And so when I don't have that, that is a trial, let me tell you. And so I hyper-focus on these small details, specifically when they mess with my normal rhythms and patterns of life. Like, I I like things in order, and and having four kids, that's a rarity, right? There's chaos. It's spontaneous. You just never know what's going to happen. And sometimes I struggle with that a lot, because I like things orderly and done decently, but we as creatures of habit, we like patterns. We like rhythms of our life. And when things disrupt that, like it can be really difficult. You know, that's a comfort unto us. So about 11 years ago, between the beginning of January and April, I was in chemotherapy, right, uh, for cancer. And so this was 11 years. So we're getting all the like little Facebook memories and some things I forgot or wish I could forget and all that. But we we had the same nurses, the same doctors, and we loved that. Again, rhythm and routine, same kind of people. And and every day of chemo was always the same. And we appreciated that because we didn't like surprises, especially when you're fighting cancer. No surprises, right? And so we had the same nurses, and, and they would always come in, and, and chemotherapy, if you don't know, is actually poison. And what you're trying to do is kill the cancer a little bit faster than the poison would kill you. Fun game to play, you know what I mean? Like, here we go. That's what chemotherapy is all about. And so because it's real poisonous, obviously when the nurses would come in and have to start another IV bag, you know, they got to gl- gown up and put gloves on. They got to put some, you know, protective equipment on. Well, a little, little kind of a cue in because I was a pediatric nurse. Sometimes you just throw gloves on real quick and you don't go through the full of it. And so we would see that kind of normal rhythm and pattern in our nurses. And then about halfway through, honestly, right about this time, um, I'm laying there. They're pumping chemo all through my body. And, and we were so used to nurses just coming in, throwing on gloves, messing with it, and right out. But then this other nurse walked in, same nurse, but it was different this day. She puts the gown on, 
She puts the mask on. She puts the gloves on. Like she goes through the full, you know, what you're supposed to do. But she was the only nurse that did that. So it wasn't like the hospital was cracking down on all the nurses. She was the only one that did. So I looked at my wife and I said, ask her if she's pregnant. Which you never ask a woman if she's pregnant, right? Like I won't ask a woman that's like great with child and it's like, oh, the baby's kicking. Like I'm not asking that. Like I don't know if you're pregnant. That's pizza. Like I, you know, <laughs> like what do you? I'm, no way. You know, it's like not until the kid comes out and be like, oh, you were pregnant. I had no idea. You know, like that. Those are just dangerous grounds, and that's why I had my wife do it instead of me, right? I thought maybe like you know, lady to lady, there'd be a little connection, and oh, there was a glow about you. They talk about a glow and. So she did, my wife did, she's like, so the nurse comes in, all, you know, everything on, and she's like, hey, not to be super personable or offending, you wouldn't happen to be pregnant, are you? And she like, and she turns around, she was like, I just found out. She's like, I don't even know if I've told my husband yet, because he was away on business or whatever. She was like, how did you know? Well, we're creatures of habit. And so as I'm seeing all the other weeks, she'd walk in to throw gloves on. Now that she's putting all that gear on, the only thing I can think was something disrupted this normal rhythm and routine, and it gave us a little bit more understanding. So that was always kind of a fun thing to look at. She's like, don't tell anybody. Like, none of my coworkers know. Like, nobody knows here. And it's like, but again, we're creatures of habit. And when we see the disruption of our normal routines and rhythms, sometimes they're for good things, and other times... Your life just starts really bad that day because you don't have the right coffee. So God, understanding that, because like where does our desire for these rhythms and routines come from? Well, I think it comes from the Lord. If we look at God, we see a rhythm and a routine about himself and how he operates and the things that he does. And so when we talk about things like we want to align ourselves with God, we say that a lot, we need to realign our hearts with the Lord. One of the things that we're saying, another way you could look at it within this context, is that God has a rhythm about who he is. And when I'm off doing my own thing, I'm not in that rhythm. But I need to get in rhythm with God. I need to get on the same page in a sense. So like if I took one of these guitars and I played a chord in just a slightly off position, if like I was holding a normal chord and I just came up one fret, one half step is all it is and played it, it would sound chaotic. The notes wouldn't blend. It would just be like, oh, something is wrong there. But if you just make a small shift and you play that same chord, you hear those different notes, but they're in rhythm. They're in they're in that same frequency. There's the same pattern about them and they fit together and it's soothing to us. That's why we like music. There's just a, a rhythm to it. And so we see God and how he operates and how he works and how he's carrying out his will within his creation. There's a certain rhythm about it. And so God's not chaotic. He's not spontaneous, even though at times that might feel that way to us which there's a reason for that. Because if God just told us everything that he was doing in his will, then it wouldn't take faith. All we would be doing is just walking in compliance because God's gonna do what he's gonna do. And so even when it might be chaotic to us, it's not to him because God is intentional and he's orderly. There's a pattern, there's a rhythm to everything that he does, even in creation, which we'll geek out on a little bit. And we see it in other areas. Like if, uh, if you've read through Exodus already, doing the Bible in a year plan, 
you will see a rhythm to how Moses and Pharaoh interact. A lot of people miss this, right? So when, with the 10 plagues that God is going to bring upon Egypt, how he does it the first time he, Moses meets with Pharaoh in the palace, and then the second time, he's going to meet with Pharaoh down by the Nile River. And the third time, Moses doesn't even meet with them. God just carries out that plague. And then he starts it back over. And so there's a, a rhythm and a routine to how God operates in that way. Because again, God is patterned. There's a divine rhythm about him. And so when we, you know, again, God's doing his thing. He's got a rhythm. And when we align our lives and our hearts to him, there's a biblical word for that. Shalom peace. See, a peace isn't the absence of difficulties or drinking coffee out of the wrong mug or any of those things. Shalom peace is that we are in the same rhythm and patterns with God and we're not fighting against him. We're in harmony with what he's doing. And even on a greater scale, we see the rhythms of God even here in Genesis 1 to 11, which these first 11 chapters is probably the most like uh, disbelieved, doubted, struggling, you know, poke holes in passages of scripture. And, and we're not talking from the outside of the church. We're talking inside the church. Did Genesis 1 to 11 really happen? Is the Bible accurate in what it details? But think about it this way. So again, rhythm and routine patterns about God. Every single biblical doctrine of theology directly or indirectly is found in Genesis 1 to 11. It's foundation. So when we look at Jesus and we call him the second Adam or the last Adam, where does that come from? We got to have a first Adam, Genesis 1 to 11. When we think about, you know, the cross, sin and death, why do we need that? Go back to Genesis 1 to 11. The seven day work week, man's dominion over creation, even the context of working, gender, sex, marriage, clothes, like even the fact that we have clothes on speaks of our covering of sin, which goes back to Genesis 1 to 11. And so we see God setting a foundation that he will later bring greater fulfillment and understanding to it. But we see these patterns and rhythms within him. Another way you might see it is the Jewish feasts. There are seven Jewish feasts that God gave to Israel and he gave that pattern of worship to them. Now, three of them have been fulfilled in the life of Jesus. A fourth one fulfilled at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the early church. And then we still have three more Jewish feasts that were waiting for the fulfillments in Christ's second advent or his return. So again, he, he gave those and, and there were some things like, why do we always do that? And there was a near fulfillment to why the Jews celebrated feasts that way. But when Christ came, he gave a greater understanding specifically within his life, death and resurrection. And so we see this rhythm about God. He's setting a foundation and then fulfilling what he has set. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Genesis one. It's the first book, right? You don't have to worry about the table of contents. None of that is inspired or divine. If you don't have a Bible, we have like the one that I actually teach and preach out of. We're not going to give you like a Kmart blue light special, like black leather bound. They're in the hub. Feel free to grab one. Those are free. You're not going to get, you know, arrested from stealing from the church. It's a gift. We would love for you to have one. But Genesis 1, and we're just going to look at the first three days of creation. We're going to look at that kind of foundational days 
that God, which we'll talk about next week, fulfills. So Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the third day. So you're seeing kind of a rhythm even in how uh, Moses is writing Genesis. Obviously, many years later, he wasn't there present for it and writing it. It was happening. It was almost uh, God says, hey, let me tell you how all this whole thing started. So Moses is writing and he's given us that kind of rhythm that we see in God in creation. And some of these things kind of just a little nuance, fun things to look at. You know, it was evening and it was morning the first day. See, we would say it the other way around, wouldn't we? It's like, it's morning than evening. But this sets, that's how I, the Jewish culture would look at the evening and then the morning. So when the sun would set, that starts a new day in Jewish culture. That's why if you have any kind of struggles reading through the Gospels, specifically when Jesus was arrested and crucified, and it's like, what day exactly was it on? Because they count days a little bit different than we do. We have that mythical midnight hour that exists but for them, once the sun set, there's a new day. And so it was evening, it was day, first day, morning. And so we see a rhythm, we see a kind of a divine pattern in how God is working, even in this first week of creation. And we see God that he's forming in these first three days that we will see later next week and the next three days what he fills and so they're almost kind of tied together, very patterned, not chaotic, very intentional. So the first day there's light, but then there's sun, moon, and stars on the fourth day. And then the expanse, and then there's fish and birds. And so each of those kind of tag together, again, very intentional pattern to what God is doing. Now in Genesis chapter one, the verses one and two, that tells us what God did. But the rest of it, the rest of chapter one and the rest of chapter two tells us how he did it. One of the things that I always like to do is if there's ever uh, a perceived contradiction in scripture, I always want to call it out. So that if you're at work and somebody's like, so how was church? I'm like, oh, we just started Genesis. And they say, oh, well, there's a contradiction in chapter two compared to chapter one. And it's like, well, I never knew that. 
Because a lot of times they'll try to find these little contradictions and be like, oh, the Bible's not the word of God. Just throw it all out. And we can just be, you know, evolutionist, humanist, materialist. And, you know, we just went from, you know, the goo to you via the zoo. And we evolved to this. And there's no creation. That one's for free. You can use it. And so I always want to call these out. And, and what we have to try to do, and this is really hard, especially when we talk about biblical writings, is we in our Western American mindset, like we really want chronological ordering. We want things done in that kind of way. That's how we think through life. That's how we read through things. Like even if we study uh, events or people, like where did it start? What was the middle? Like how did it end? We like that chronological study. And we get to scripture And that really wasn't a big criteria of theirs. That wasn't a a, a main focus. Even the life, so it's not just like early Genesis, go thousands of years later with the life and the ministry of Jesus. The gospel writers weren't really too worried about keeping a perfect chronological detail biography of Jesus's life. That's not the point of scripture nor is it in an encyclopedia to every little question that we can have. First thing I learned in Bible college was it's okay to say, I don't know. And there's a lot of things that are not mentioned in scripture. And I think there's a veiling for a reason so that we wouldn't hyper-focus on some of those small details. That again, we don't want the Bible to say more than what it says, and we don't want it to say less than what it says. We just let the word of God speak. And so if there's a veiling and we don't know what that was like, it's there probably for a reason. Because if God wanted to clearly teach it, he would, like the divinity of Jesus. There's no veiling to that. We can fully understand and know that Jesus is God because the Bible fully teaches that. But there's some other context and aspects of life that we wish, honestly, that the Bible would give us more details. But sometimes we have to trust not just in the things that God does give us, but we also have to trust in the things that God doesn't give us. And there's reasons for both. And so chapter one is a very general, big picture uh, understanding, kind of a more of a chronological account that we would like. But then when you get to chapter two, it provides more of a specific description, more of a topical account, specifically humanity. And so when you try to mesh these together, you will see a perceived contradictions because if you try to add in a chronological understanding to chapter two, it's going to be different than chapter one and be like, oh, look, there's the heirs of the Bible. Once again, it's not. You just have to understand what is the purpose of the writing. And even in those two different chapters, here's a chronological account. Here's a specific topical account speaking of humanity. So if you look at Genesis 1, in the beginning, God, honestly, probably could preach six weeks on those four words. Okay, nobody wants the offer. Okay, here we go. I thought somebody said, yeah, let's do it. No, it's like, no, we would be in Genesis in, you know, 2034, and I think Jesus would come back before we got done with it. And, but in the beginning, God. So many people look and they think, well, if God created everything, what's the question we hear? Who created God? Bad question. Why? Think about it. Anything that has a beginning has a cause, right? You had a beginning. Therefore, you have a cause. You call them parents. We won't get too descriptive. (laughs) A couple of you people got the joke. There we go, right? (laughs) So those of us who had a beginning had a cause, but God does not have a beginning. He is not like us. 
He is completely unlike us. And so for God, he didn't have a beginning, therefore he doesn't have a cause. Some theologians would, would say it this way, he's the uncaused causer. He is the uncaused, having no beginning, because the Bible clearly teaches that God is eternal, right? And even that, we think eternal means, you know, time past and time future. That's actually a wrong definition, because eternal means that he's outside of time. So to say that God always existed in time, it's a little bit of an error there because time didn't always exist. It wasn't until in the beginning where God brought time, space, and matter, which Einstein's theory of general relativity would tell us all of those are co-equal and codependent upon each other. You can't have time and space without matter and vice versa. So what was before all of that? God. And it's hard for us to understand that outside of timeness. But God is eternal. Scripture clearly teaches us that. And there was no passing of time. So we can ask that question like, well, what did God do before he created everything? Was it just him, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, just hanging out in this unity of community and they're playing Monopoly and Racco and, you know, that's an old school game for you. And they're just hanging out and finally one of them says, hey, what if we created a world and some people, you know, and they're going to sin and we'll kill you for it. You know, like that's kind of what happened, right? We're like, yeah, let's do it. Like that, we think about it, like, what was that time passing? And that's where we have to understand God is outside of time. God is an uncreated being. He wasn't created. He simply always was and is and is to come. And that's a hard thing to wrap our minds around. There's, there's a little bit of a veiling and a mystery to it, but I think it's kind of good because if we could perfectly explain everything about God, he would cease to be God at that point, would he not? Like, would you still worship something that you could perfectly and fully understand? I think it's one of the greatest things about God is we can't know everything about him. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the heavens, that word is used plural. We understand that there's three heavens. We have the sky that we look up. We have the universe. We use our telescope. And then there's the heavens, meaning God's space. You know, like, so we die, go to heaven. That's the context. There's three heavens. And even Paul would talk about that later in one of his writings, one of his epistles. He talks about a man who is caught up to the third heaven, right? That was Paul himself. Like, it was so crazy, he didn't even name drop himself. Like, if it was any one of us, I'd be like, well, I went to heaven. God took me up, you know. I'm pretty cool like that, unlike you losers, you know. But it was something so crazy. Paul doesn't even name drop himself, but that's what he's talking about. It, it didn't mean he floated in the sky. It didn't mean that he went to the moon. He went into God's space. So he created the heavens and the earth. Now that word created, right? I don't speak Hebrew, so we're going to fake it till we make it, right? But you can study it. So in the beginning, God created. And that word created is bara, B-A-R-A. And this word is only used of God to create. It is never used of man, so if man was going to make or build something, there's different words for that. So to make, um, you know, man can make a saw or he can build bana, but he can never bara, B-A-R-A. He cannot create. Only God can create. Only God can bara, create out of nothing. So our theology, we have a few Latin words that we use would be, and you, you'll hear this, ex nihilo meaning out of nothing. 
So God wasn't just rolling around and be like, you know, I got some two by fours down here. I got some carpet and different things. Like we could probably fashion together a nice little clubhouse and we'll fill it with humans and this will be kind of fun. And there was, you know, already kind of a junk drawer of, you know, his space. And he thought, yeah, I'll grab some of this. No, no, he created out of nothing. And even nothing is really hard for us to understand. Is it not? So like between me and George here, there's nothing. Isn't there? Or actually there is, there's space, there's air, there's, we can't say that there's nothing between us. So the idea of nothingness is kind of crazy. It's one of those mysteries. It's like, that one's a hard one to understand because we know that, you know, the evolutionists that want to tell us, uh, I thought the craziest theory that I've heard is that uh, uh, intergalactic supernatural sea turtles deposited us on this ball of matter and we evolved to who we are. Super sounds crazy, right? Here's, here's the craziest aspect of that. Yeah, he teaches in a top university in the science department. So keep sending your kids to the good schools. Yeah, they're getting an education, aren't they? Sounds more like indoctrination, but I digress. But yeah, there's some crazy thoughts because we have to try to explain, which obviously Einstein's theory of relativity and, and even Stephen Hawking has a theory of a zero spatial volume, understanding that everything came from a singular point of nothingness. And so my favorite question to ask somebody that does believe in evolution, that maybe it doesn't believe in God whatsoever, is how did everything, how did something come from nothing? And usually I'll tag it with, but why? They might give me a how question. Oh, there was this and that and, you know, black holes. And that's the leading thing that they're trying to figure out now. But why? Give me purpose in it. Why would something come from nothing? So we, and there's so much that we could geek out on um, and, and honestly probably just snow ourselves with all kinds of scientific understanding, but we have to understand what's the purpose of scripture so that the man of God would be adequate and equipped for every good work, not just to have a massive geek out into science. But as I was walking through school and working on a master's in apologetics, this is one of the biggest topics that we addressed. Is there scientific evidence for creation. And I'm telling you, yes is the answer. And that rabbit hole will go as deep as you want to go. I promise you. Like there, there was multiple times in class, it was just like, I feel like a kid with the little floaties and, you know, like a little floaty pink uh, flamingo around my waist, just in a massive deep pool thinking I will never touch the bottom of this. And some of these minds that are speaking, I'm just like, I, I'm praying to the Lord. I need an interpretation. Please, Lord, I do not understand what is happening. And so there is absolutely great evidence for our faith. It doesn't replace our faith, but there's a great evidence for our faith. And I think that lines up with Hebrews 11.1 1 and the definition of faith. But we see that only God creates out of nothingness. And then you'll see, uh, there's another, now we got to mess with the theologians, try to mess with this passage a little bit. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And what you'll hear, and again, I always try to bring these up so you're not caught off guard at the workplace or talking with friends or, you know, maybe another pastor friend. There's a theory called the gap theory. And maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. Let's talk through it. It's not about clothes, right? Not that, not wrong gap, wrong gap. 
So the gap theory, because what we need to try to do, and I'm speaking as kind of a, an evolutionist that has that mentality of hundreds of millions of years, and how do we synthesize that into scripture? So sometimes you can have these Christians, but they hold to an evolution belief of, of how everything began. So they try to synthesize them together. And one of those is called the gap theory. And it became popular in 1912 by a guy named Schofield. So if you can find a Schofield reference Bible, you'll hear this kind of teaching, little footnote that is put between verse one and verse two of Genesis. And that's the gap theory, meaning we need a gap of time to account for the millions and billions of years so that our science makes sense, which we could attack those thoughts another day. But this is the gap theory. And the reason, one of the things is they would say, well, that's when Satan fell was in between verse one and verse two. So this is, this is gonna be a little bit of a struggle. So go with me. Again, our Western American mindset, we love chronology and everything has to perfectly make sense. We won't get that with scripture at times right? We, we, we can't take our expectations and this is what we want from scripture. Like we just have to read it as it is. And so what about the fall of Satan? When did that happen? And what we see and know is that the physical world and everything that we see, know, and touch is merely a reflection of the spiritual world. Even Paul would warn us of that. You're not fighting a physical battle, right? We're in a spiritual batter, battle. That's what we're in. And so the physical world that we have is merely a reflection of the spiritual world. So the things that are happening in the spiritual world, which is, uh, and again, we have to break that context of like heaven up there, hell down here, and we're in the middle just trying to do our best so we go up and the elevator doesn't go down. That's actually not a biblical view of the spiritual world whatsoever. And so if you're sitting here thinking like, that's what I've always believed I'm going to wreck your life, this study through Genesis, okay? So the spiritual world, because again, how was, and we kind of joked about it, how was God and Satan having a conversation together? What space were, were they meeting in like, you know, uh, a demilitarized zone between the two? But there's the spiritual world. Who is the angel wrestling with in the, in the book of Daniel that he was late to get to Daniel to bring that word of prophecy? And he was like, oh, the prince of Persia was wrestling against me and he kept me busy. Well, who was that? And why was he allowed in heaven, right? So there's a spiritual world and the things that happen there, our physical world is a mere representation or a reflection of those. So when did Satan fall? The same time Adam and Eve fell. And we'll get to that in Genesis 3. But I know what you're going to ask. Well, how can Satan fall and be in the garden before Adam and Eve fall? Because we're trying, what you're trying to do is synthesize a perfect chronological understanding. And we can't between the spiritual and the physical world. And so this gap theory wants to try to bring in a space of time to show for Satan's rebellion. And I would push back on that for a few things. So what's the evidence again it, against it? The basis of the Hebrew grammar, word usage, the verb forms, the theory's not acceptable. Because verse two is describing something that's included in verse one. It completely eliminates the possibility of a large gap of time. Verses one and two, like we said before, is merely telling us what God did. And then everything after that is telling us how God did it. Verse two, with this, without the earth, without form and void and darkness over the waters is just merely describing the conditions at the time of creation. 
So there's a little bit difference in that. So if you hear that gap theory, usually what, we're try, what they're trying to do is add a lot of time so that we can ring in evolution. And if you haven't picked up on the subtle hints, I am vastly against evolution, right? And, and so now we, we work on to verse three. So we get, this, we get this, what's happened? God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do this? And listen to the first few words. What do we hear? And God said. Think about the implications of that. God could have done anything to bring creation, but he spoke language. And so we think about that veiling and the mystery, some of the craziness that keeps me up at night. What language was it? Did God have a Scottish accent? You know, like I think about those things. God in my mind has that. Then I have to lay that idol down and be like, no, 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 that's not, you know, like what language was that? Obviously when he created Adam and Eve and he spoke to them, they knew it. What was it? Was that, is that what Paul was talking about later? That that's the language of angels, the tongue of angels compared to a tongue of men. Like this, those are the crazy things that keep me up at night. So when my wife looks at me, we're on a long drive. She's like, what are you thinking about? I just tell her nothing so I don't freak her out. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm like, I'm in my nothing box. I'm really not. I'm in my theology box. It's, just, it's like all the crazy things that we don't know. But what we do have and what we do know is God used language, whichever one that was, and he spoke into creation. And what's the first thing that he said? Let there be light which is what's the question we have for the follow-up? How can we have light without a sun, moon, or star? So what is this light, right? One theologian put it this way. Pure energy brought into existence as God begins to reveal his creation glory. Like, who talks like that? You know what I mean? Like, definitely not me. I agree with it. He has a little bit better use of wordage than me. But this is just who God is. So as he, in the beginning, before the beginning of everything created, he is who he is. And so as he created, he allowed his glory to be seen. And, and what we can't do is try to run to make sense of something in the physical world because we're not in that, right? Because we know a metaphysical attribute of God is God is light. First John 1, 5. Revelation 22.5 tells us that God is light. And so when he creates the space to allow himself to be seen, that's him revealing his creation glory. And so instead of running and trying to find a physical source of light, we have to understand that this light is supernatural, right? Think of the opposite. Go back to Exodus. What was one of the plagues that God brought upon Egypt? A supernatural darkness, was the darkness real and literal? Yes. And it wasn't a eclipse. It was a real, literal, understanding darkness, but it was supernatural to it. And so if God can bring a supernatural darkness, could he not bring a supernatural light? Because a lot of times we think supernatural and we go, oh, that's not real. And so here's the question. Do we live in a physical world with a spiritual existence, or do we live in a spiritual world with a physical existence? Which one do we really live in? Because when we see the things and the moves and the work of God, and we always want to run to just a physical understanding of it, we're operating under the, maybe not the best paradigm that we need to look, not for a physical 
answer, but to a supernatural and to a spiritual one for it. Because again, spiritual battle that we're in, it's not a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. And the things that God is doing were merely a reflection of that spiritual world. And so we see this common theme in the first three days of creation, which is kind of different. Like we think of God in unity, but what do we see in the first three days? Separation. See, in day one, God separates light from darkness. He creates day and night. Day two, he separates the waters. The waters from below to the vapor above. Day three, he separates land and waters and he creates land and vegetation. And he's setting a foundation that I think later, much later, he's going to fulfill, not just in his created order, because we'll see that in the next few days, but even the context of separation. Because what is he going to call of us as followers of Jesus? To be set apart. Yeah, you're in this world, but you're not of this world. You are called to be holy set apart. You're called to be sanctified, which is a setting apart from the world around us. Well, how could God, why would he want me to separate? That that's the theme from the very beginning that we see a separation in that and there's purpose for it. And I think God is using to set that foundation that he's going to continually build on because what does he call Israel to be? Set apart. What does he call us as the church? Set apart. What is he going to do in new heavens and new earth? What's he going to do from all those that reject him? There's going to be a separation of it. So this is the thing of God, the will of God that he's bringing, not just unity to us as the family, the followers of Jesus, the church, but there's also a call of separation as well. So we see that in the first three days, which again brings up one more question about Genesis. Right. I never like to do Q&As, question and answers. I like to do Q&Rs, questions and responses. I don't have all the answers, but I can respond to any question. But usually when we talk about the days of creation, what's the next thing that we ask? Was that literally 24-hour day? Was that really just one week? Like from last Sunday to this Sunday, God did all of that? Or was it long periods of time? So there we are trying to, to kind of, uh, no pun intended, I guess, monkey with the time. <laughs> Sorry. That was way funnier in my head. And I, <laughs> you know, so here we are trying to mess with the timeline to account for what? An evolutionary thought, which is not science. Evolution is not science. I promise you. Evolution is a philosophical argument, not a scientific one, right? And so we try to, we, because we're messing with the word of God, say, because we, we have that one verse, right? A day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day unto the Lord. I mean, that only gives us 7,000 years. That doesn't make up the hundreds of millions of billions of years that evolution needs to try to get from, again, a goo to you via the zoo, you know? And so, is it really a day? And again, let's defend that. Um, I hold to a literal 24-hour day in creation. And the defense for it, number one, is you would, anytime you see a numerical adjective attached to that word, day, in Hebrew is yom. So we see the first yom, the second yom, the third yom. Anytime you see a numerical adjective connected to it, it brings it to more of a literal interpretation. Instead of, because you can say a day, 
and use it in a figurative term. But once you start adding that numerical adjective to it, it indicates more of a literal understanding. Number two, Moses accepted it. And he wrote the first five books of the Bible. God spoke to him and he wrote. And so if you go to like Exodus 20 verse 11 or 31 verse 17. So in Exodus 20, we know is the 10 commandments. We get the first 10 commandments and then he speaks a little bit after and says, oh yeah, because you created, it's, it's in one of the 10 commandments talking about the Sabbath. Why did Israel honor the Sabbath? Because God created everything in the six days, but he rested on the seventh day. And so there's a literal understanding to that week. And think, if God, if God was speaking to Moses and Moses was writing in a figurative sense, what would we do? We would apply that to the rest of the Ten Commandments. Oh, he wasn't literally meaning don't murder. He just meant that figuratively. He didn't literally mean don't commit adultery. He just meant that figuratively. And the moment we can go figurative with it and get real allegorical and just crazy analogies, we can make it say anything that we want. So now we get to kill each other and sleep with whoever, right? Or does God's word mean what God's word means? Do we allow the word of God to speak? And so the Hebrew structure itself teaches that. And then lastly, because we, as a Calvary Chapel, walking book by book, verse by verse, we take a normal, literal interpretation, a a fancy term you would hear is hermeneutic, to scripture. And so we would hold God's word means what it says, and it says what it means. We don't need this deeper underlying hidden knowledge to further understand that any follower of Jesus full of the Holy Spirit can read the word of God and understand. But think about it. How did he do all of this creation? He spoke. Understand the significance of that. We Just in our short few verses that we're studying this morning, what we see is God said four times. And next week, we're going we're to hear it again, that God is speaking all of this into creation. So if you have your Bible, just turn to Psalm 19, okay? And again, yes, we walk book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, but sometimes we need a good systematic approach where uh, if you really want the fullness of creation, you know, you got to go to John 1. You got to go to Colossians 1 verses 16 and 17. That's where, you know, because in Genesis, we see the Father and we see the Spirit, but it's not so Colossians that we see that the Son was active in creation. All things were created by him and for him. And so there's a systematic approach, but Psalm 19, and I'm just going to read the first few words, but listen to the, the words of, of speaking or verbal processing, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge or understanding. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So understand, God spoke creation into existence. Why? So that his creation would speak of his existence. So understand, like the very thing that we have of language and communication, that's not something that evolved 
over time. Now words might, right? We heard Pastor Gabe talk about that last week, you know, with the Risley bear and mid and all the other little. So words can evolve in their understanding, but the idea of language, that was always God. And he used language to speak everything into creation so that his creation would speak of his existence. So think of the power of our words. And I mean, obviously we could go through all of scripture and talk about the power of the tongue and don't be, you know, Proverbs saying, don't be a fool by your many words. And, you know, Paul saying, let your, all your speech be seasoned with salt and be encouraging. Like there's all kinds of verses. Even think of the four commands that were given in the New Testament in regard to the Holy Spirit. We're called not to grieve the Holy Spirit. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? This is in Ephesians, by what comes out of our mouth. And so we, we have that fun little saying, you know, sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will never hurt. It's one of the greatest lies of the devil. Don't you remember hurtful words that were said to you many, many a time ago? And you're still holding on to them because that's hard to forgive. It's easy to turn our cheek and get slapped again. But to hear what somebody thinks and says of us, that's a whole nother battle. And to think the language, the, just the concept of language being used to reject God, using the very thing that he gave to bring life, we use in the most anti-God way to reject him. And so when the atheist wants to deny God, I almost want to say, all right, you can deny God. Don't use language to do it though, because that's his that's his. Everything that we have is because of him, and he spoke it. And that's why it is so imperative for us to be in the word of God. Why? Because we go to 2 Timothy 3.16, and it says, all scripture is inspired, or all scripture was God-breathed. So think about when you talk, you have, you can feel, we make sounds because of the breath and you can feel that breath coming out as we speak. That's how we put language together. And so when we read the word of God, that is the very breath of God speaking to us. And as followers of Jesus, having the spirit of God within us and the word of God before us, he continually speaks to us. Which just to say one more thing, Every once in a while, you'll hear people say, oh, God spoke to me, God told me. Just so you know, God will never speak around his word. He will always speak through his word. So when somebody hits me with one of these, well, God told me, and here God said to me, where are you at in the word? Ah, you know, it's hard for me to study the Bible. Then that's not the voice of the Lord speaking to you because he will not speak around his word. He will always speak through his word. And we will always hold fast to the word of God because it's his very words. And so as we even interact with each other, why do you think encouragement is so needed in the body? Why is it to build each other up so needed? Because of the power of what speech is. And so for us to be full of the Holy Spirit, following in the fruits of the Spirit, one of the, what's James tell us, what's one of the toughest things that we'll ever be able to tame it's our tongue. Watch what you say. Because it's not little ears around us that hear us, but the very presence of God in our lives. 
and we're using the very thing that he used to bring creation, to articulate salvation to us, to tear down his good creation. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We trust you. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that not only do we have language that we can speak, but you even make it available for us to speak to you. So we come to you in prayer, Lord. And even when we can't find words to speak, when life hits us with grief and pain and hurt, it is just so deep that we can't even put language to it, Lord. The promise that we have of your Holy Spirit that would come and intercede on our behalf, that would take our groanings and pray on our behalf, Lord, we are just so thankful. But I pray we, as this family of faith, we would use this gift of language to build each other up, to preach your gospel, to give testimony, to share of the good things of who you are so that those that are still walking and broken and still walking in their sin without a relationship with you, Lord, would hear of your goodness, would hear of your grace, your love, your mercy, Lord, and they would be captivated. Give us that kind of faith that kind of boldness, that kind of courage, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said...